Welcome to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. Sydney Ideas is the University of Sydney's public events program, providing you with the opportunity to hear leading thinkers from our university and around the world. Enjoy the podcast. It's my very great pleasure to introduce our speaker for this evening, Professor Lynette Russell. Lynette has more than 20 years' experience teaching and researching in historical studies with a distinctly interdisciplinary flavour. Her many books, a number of them co-authored, a tribute, I think, to her particularly collaborative style of scholarship, include Hunt Them, Hang Them, The Tasmanians in Port Phillip, 1841-42, Governance and Victoria, a Colonial History, Postcolonial Theory and the Aboriginal Problem, Roving Mariners, Aboriginal Whalers and Sealers in the Southern Oceans, 1790-1870, Appropriated Pasts, Archaeology and Indigenous People in Settled Colonies, and Savage Imaginings, Historical and Contemporary Representation of Australian Aboriginalities. And there are many more, but this, I think, gives something to the flavour of her research. Lynette describes her research as broadly anthropological history. She has published widely in areas of theory, indigenous histories, post-colonialism and representations of race, museum studies and popular culture. As the director of the Monash Indigenous Studies Centre at Monash University and as the no-director of the Australian Research Council Centre of Excellence in Australian Biodiversity and Heritage, her work intersects with that of archaeologists, anthropologists, geographers and environmental scientists as well as other historians. She is a powerful advocate for Indigenous studies and for ethical research that engages respectfully with cultures and communities and recognises their ownership of the past. As the current president of the Australian Historical Association, she is also a powerful public advocate for the discipline and the profession of history. The driving force in her research, she says, is her aspiration to understand not merely the past, but how we come to know the past, how we describe, categorise, interpret and analyse it. In tonight's lecture, she takes on the challenging question of how we understand, imagine, visualise and create stories for 50,000 or more years of Australian history. I'm delighted, Lynette, that you accepted this invitation and will you please join me in welcoming Professor Lynette Russell. Thank you, Penny. Thank you to the organisers. Thank you for the honour of giving this the second Bicentennial Australian History Lecture. I also pay my respects to the Gadigal people of the Aura Nation and their ancestral lands on which the University of Sydney is built. I don't know about you, but every time I hear, um, not tonight fortunately, but so often when we hear an acknowledgement of country, they tend to be um, somewhat robotic. Not tonight, I'm pleased to say, but often you think that they are read from a very pat script. So I think all universities have these, and my university included. I'm sure many of you will have seen that uh, 65,000 years of Aboriginal occupation of Australia was recently announced. I had originally called my paper 50,000 years, and then they quickly (laughs) discovered 65,000 years, so we start again. Here in Eora country, archaeologists have dated the occupation to over 14,000 years before the present and not far afield to 30,000 years and possibly even 40,000 years. Suffice to say, it is a long, long, long time before 1788. Now, instead of the -the run-of-the-mill acknowledgement of country, I'm going to ask you to imagine 2,000 generations, mother to son, father to daughter, 
in an unbroken line, a lineage that connects us to the land. That is the land on which we meet. And even as we sit here above what must be metres of concrete, um, steel beneath our feet run kilometres of coaxial cable and vast optic fibre networks, we still stand on unceded Aboriginal land. And it is to the owners of that land that I give my acknowledgement. I honour the thousands of ancestors that have come before us and those that are with us still. And I ask that we all benefit from their wisdom and their courage. And that is especially the case for those of us that teach. In Melbourne, I live on the land of the Kulin nations, the Wurundjeri and the Bunurong. It's on that land that I wrote tonight's lecture. So in doing so, I began to reflect on Kulin nations, and in particular, their ceremony called Tandaram. Tandaram is a ceremony enacted by the nations of the Kulin people and other Victorian Aboriginal nations, allowing safe passage and temporary access to the use of the land, the resources, by people from outside. It was a diplomatic rite. It involved a landholder's hospitality and a ritual exchange of gifts. Some people referred it to, the freedom of, uh, to it as freedom of the bush. It was at a tandaram that communities would meet, they would debate, they would share stories and they would come to mutual understandings. And I hope tonight this might be a sort of tandaram too that at the end we might have some mutual understandings. In the language of my great-grandmother, it means I'm pleased to be with you and to speak and share our stories. That is a language that was until very recently classified as extinct. But elders working with linguists have roused it, reminding us that it wasn't perhaps extinct but merely asleep not dead at all. It was through a desire to salvage and promote Indigenous languages that a colleague and I set up the Monash Country Lines Archive, which I'm going to talk about a little bit tonight. It's worth reflecting in passing that the Monash Country Lines Archive was actually established with philanthropic money because we couldn't get government, state, nor indeed federal to buy in to salvaging Aboriginal languages. Instead, we managed to very generous donation of in excess of a million dollars from one donor, we set up the program. I hope that that's one of the things we take away tonight, just how tenuous it is, this kind of space that I work in, that we often have to turn to philanthropy in order to be funded. It's appropriate in this particular place where we are now that I'm going to show you about a minute and 20 seconds of uh, the first footprints, which is it was done by Bentley Dean and Martin Butler, working with archaeologists, and it's particularly pertinent to this place here in Sydney. What I've got here, unfortunately, the ABC took it off their website about a week ago, so I'm actually being reduced to... <coughs> Uh, using a YouTube clip, which unfortunately has French subtitles. I apologise for that, <laughs> which is rather amusing. So, just a minute and 20 seconds. But the reason I'm showing you this is to get you into the moment of thinking and imagining what this might have been like here, on this place, before Europeans arrived.
before the English arrived. Before the Dutch landed. Before the Macassans sailed from the north. Back when giant animals still roamed the land. When New Guinea was part of Greater Australia. We were here. I love this program. I think it's not without its flaws, but I think it is a marvellous opportunity and exploration of ways of telling stories. And the producers and director and the, and the author of the program worked very closely with archaeologists to, in order to produce it. As a historian, I'm really interested in sharing stories. I'm really passionate about telling the narratives of the past, of the importance of building our knowledge about what went before us, understanding the sociology of that knowledge and the power of that knowledge. And then, I confess in my best lefty bleeding heart manner, creating what I hope might be a better future. So tonight's lecture's subtitle was a plea for interdisciplinarity, but it's also an exploration of the importance of narratives and the importance of imagination. Now, before I accidentally reenact the disagreements that arose between Kate Grenville and uh, Inga Clendenin, I'm not making a plea for fiction over history. In fact, notwithstanding my abiding admiration of the Secret River trilogy, I'm actually asking that those of us who work in this space, those of us that are interested in the past, think in creative and imaginative ways. And the key word there is imaginative, not imaginary. It's particularly important now because many of our students are a really very new generation. They come to the university and indeed they come to schools and they are extremely technically literate. Many of them have had iPods and iPads since they were children. Their technical literacy certainly leaves mine for dead. So I really think we need to embrace the technology as it is available to us in order to tell the past, the stories of the past. As I mentioned, the title of tonight's talk is A Moving Feast. It is the deep antiquity of the Australian continent that keeps being pushed back. So as I said, I conservatively titled it 50,000 Years of History, and then of course they discovered 65,000. Even as recently as the 1960s and 70s, people thought Aboriginal people had been in Australia for only a few thousand years. Indeed, in the 1950s, it was widely believed that the first Australians had been here for just a few thousand years. They were, were regarded as both primitive and fossilised, but not necessarily ancient. In the decades since, Indigenous history, and I mean history, has been pushed back into a dizzying expanse of deep time. What on earth does 65,000 years mean? How can we use these recent discoveries to tell the story of epic Australian history? You probably noticed that when they did discuss 65,000 years, the date is what they focus on. It becomes the key thing, not what they found at the 65,000 year level or what it might mean or what it might suggest, but simply that they have dated 
a thing to 65,000 years. What they actually found was worked ochre and stone tools. They found the remains of food. I like to think about this a little bit more creatively. Ochre probably indicates art, possibly body decoration, possibly decorating objects, possibly decorating the cave walls. This is a fully formed, fully modern human family. These are people who sing, who dance, who celebrate, who mourn, who live, who share and who tell stories to each other. It's not just a date. The headlines remind me very much of the sorts of tourist headlines that we get. The timelessness of Australia. It's ancient. It's the never-never. It's the outback. It's beyond. It's always beyond somewhere. It's never here. It's always beyond. And sometimes those terms are linked to tradition, so it becomes the ancient traditions, the timeless traditions. And, of course, scooped up in that Aboriginal and, indeed, Torres Strait Islander people become described as the world's oldest living continual cultural tradition. Indeed, the tourists tell us that they've been living here, and this is literally official, living in Australia for at least 40,000 and possibly up to 60,000 years. If you want to visit the Northern Territory, you can immerse yourself in these stories, artworks and ancient traditions of Indigenous Australians, one of the world's oldest living groups. What on earth does that mean? What does the world's oldest living group even mean? We know there have been people in China for 80,000 years and we know there have been people in Africa for 100,000 years. So what does the world's oldest living tradition actually mean? I decided to ask a number of Aboriginal people how they felt about this particular perspective on their history. So I conducted a survey of 35 Aboriginal people. Now, this is hardly scientific, and it is certainly not random because they were all my Facebook friends. <laughs> so, my survey showed a range of responses. They were, they were from different backgrounds, ages, genders. Some were university trained, some were not. Um, those with university education tended to have a slightly different take to those that did not. But some of the answers went like this. I think the question's important, but rather less so than who it is that's asking it, which I think is a pretty profound statement. I think it's a kind of essentialism, but then again, I think that might be important. It's a theory. Another person said, I can't imagine a thousand years, let alone 50,000 years. Another said, I think about the Maori and I ask, are they indigenous? Well, of course they are, but haven't they only been there a few hundred years? I'll ask the question about the Maori and then I wonder if they are in first people and then the rhetoric always comes back, yes. And I realise now, I have to think again, it's a leap, it's a colonial leap. It defines their Indigenous status. It's not a state of being... It's not a state of being from a place. It's a state of being in a place. And finally, this is where we belong, 
This is where we are. This is where we become. This is where we are, Aboriginal. Eric Wilmot described Australia as the place where Aboriginal people became Aboriginal. Yesterday's Australian had a, a report from the um, Institute of Public Affairs, which has caused me to grind my teeth and lose sleep. Um, I'm, in fact, loath to even describe it. But it was really to discuss the teaching of history and the rise of what they call identity politics. The sorts of responses that I've got here would probably play directly into that, um, I think, fairly narrow view of the teaching of history. But it's broader than that. And in centuries past, when European academics defined Aboriginal culture, as they often did, as the most primitive on earth, and Aboriginal people as the least evolved, in many respects, I fear that the myth of the oldest culture on earth is simply a new and politically correct way of rephrasing old racist attitudes. Australian history, as it's told by historians, tends to start with European arrival, whether this is dated at 1770, 1788 or earlier. Eastern states in particular focus on 1770, while Western Australia, certainly the Torres Straits, focus on the 1606 and 1620s. Historians have been remiss in not engaging with archaeology and deep time with an obvious and outstanding exceptions, including Grace Carskins in her exquisite The Colony. The nexus and interception and golfing chasm that is where prehistory becomes history has been described as Carskins in a melodic meditation that is entirely appropriate to tonight's discussion. She says, the city of Sydney is predicated upon the dispossession of Aboriginal people. Their loss underpins the city's foundation and growth as it expands over more and more of their country. Their dispossession is seen as sad but inevitable, the price of founding a new nation and a great city. And it was instant too. The year 1788 is that fatal point, turning point where black prehistory is neatly sheared off so that white history of city making can begin. I'm really interested in that question between history and prehistory. When Europeans colonised the continent of Australia in the 18th century, they set foot onto a land that had been home to countless generations for 65,000 years, as I said. They encountered over 200 language groups and more than 600 tribes and cultures that differed from one another across every geographic zone. These groups lived along the coasts and the hinterlands. They travelled into the mountains. They thrived in harsh deserts. They lived in great numbers along waterways and rivers. To the European post-enlightenment mind, they were simply the natives. And although they could not have missed the regional and cultural differences amongst groups, they instead homogenised them as the Aborigines. And of course, Torres Strait Islanders, much later so, similarly homogenised, but after having first been um, ignored. When I first began teaching in this area as a postgraduate student in the 1990s at the University of Melbourne, where I tutored for my supervisor and much-missed Patrick Wolfe, I would always start the first tutorial of each semester with the question on names and naming. How many Native American groups can you name? Was my opening gambit. 
and invariably we could get 15 or 20 different Native American groups. My second question, and how many Aboriginal groups can you name, we usually struggled to get two or three. At best they'd come up with Pitanjara, maybe Aranda, Yolnu, Tiwi, and then after the unsuccessful Native title claim, Yorta Yorta. I actually stopped asking those questions a number of years ago because actually society had moved on. Through the hard work, activism and the constant reminders, the wider public had come to understand cultural and regional diversity. There are local signs welcoming you to the land of the Wiradjuri or the land of the Wiradjuri. Even here in Sydney, I was here earlier in the year and I was staying at a Mercure Hotel and one of their revolving advertisements advertising their lobster dinner and their hamburgers for lunch included an acknowledgement that they stood on um, the land of the Aura. I, I was stunned. I actually took a photo of it on my phone and the man came and asked me what I was doing. And, Would I like to see the manager? <laughs> From my... Introduction, very generous introduction from Penny. You'll notice that I have a real affinity for personal and intellectual boundary riding. I trained as an archaeologist, um, but then 20 odd years ago, I, nearly 20 years ago, I switched to history. Uh, but I still have this real problematic divide between these two so called disciplines. I'm constantly bumping into disciplinary boundaries. Indeed, my life is shaped by my connections to archaeology both personally and professionally. Now this is actually a wonderful place to inhabit and one of the very reasons that I choose to deal with the interdisciplinary space of Indigenous studies. But I'm also swayed by the words of David Christian that if historians don't tell the stories of the scales of creation myths, then someone else will and I don't want someone else to. So this is my interdisciplinary or transdisciplinary plea for a different type of history. In the early 2000s, I wrote a book that explored what I called the homogeneity paradigm. I argued that the homogeneity paradigm was spatial and chronological. Spatial um, meant that, that we just had the Aborigines. Chronological meant they didn't change over time. Well, over the interim of that two decades, as I mentioned, I think the spatial paradigm or the spatial element of my paradigm has fallen away. And indeed, we now can say whose land we stand on and whose land we live on. We recognise the differences. And I think this map, with all its problematics, we all know that the IATSIS map has loads of mistakes in it, but I think it's actually profoundly important and I think it's had a huge impact on the general public that now see this and recognise that there are many, many nations within our one land. But chronological homogeneity is, unfortunately, it seems for the time being, here to stay. You, I don't anticipate you being able to read that. I, in preparation for this talk, I had a look through various timelines of Australian history. This one comes from the BBC, um, which, while we may not think of it as a scholarly source, it's almost certainly a source that some school teachers will use for their teaching. The BBC notes... 40,000 years BC, the first Aborigines arrived and by 20,000 years they had spread to Tasmania. Their next date is 1770. <laughs> this Australian history line, timeline, which uh, 
very popular, and actually many people I know actually consult this, including school kids, has pre-1770 and then all the rest. <laughs> this one comes from a New South Wales um, local resource. 70,000 years ago, Aborigines are thought to have migrated to, immigrated to Australia. 42,000 years, Aboriginal engravings. 35,000 years ago, they reached Tasmania. 2,000 years ago, the dingo. And then Marco Polo describes the southern land, and then we go straight into the Dutch. So over that vast period of time, nothing happens. <laughs> you can buy... <laughs> The Australian history timeline game, which you might be surprised to discover, starts in 1770. <laughs> and this gem is actually designed as a sheet for children to do their activities on, and it literally says Australia was discovered 1770, and then this was used in 2011. 2011. Children are then able to write in it all the various things that have happened. And finally, I like this one. The timeline index below shows how Australia has advanced over the years. Aboriginals, not Aboriginals, but Aboriginals, Aboriginals have been here in Australia hundred, sorry, for thousands of years before the first sighting of Australia, 1606, the Dutch. It's really, it, and it, I mean, these are, I've been circumspect. There are just so many of these. It's astonishing. Recently, I went to Canberra to the um, National Museum of Australia to look at the Torres Strait exhibition, and I was utterly astounded. This is an exhibition that was built with community engagement, to the best of my knowledge. It says... 9,000 years Torres Strait Islanders have lived and prospered in their homeland where distinct cultures and languages and religions have developed. 1606, the Spanish. That's it. Not that that 9,000 years is compressed into two sentences. Even though we know that when people arrived in Torres Strait, they had to deal with a, a totally different landscape. The sea had only just arrived there. The coral reefs hadn't even developed. Over that, over that 9,000 year period, Torres Strait Islander societies developed and advanced and changed. They became just what they are we see today. The culture, the dance, the art, the language, their economics, the ways in which they harvest their food. They became maritime experts. None of that compressed all into a simple sentence. So, if it's a problem for 9,000 years, imagine what it is for 65. So the question I ask is, I want to ponder how we might give a sense of the dynamism that we know that over 60,000 years, cultures and societies changed. They were never stagnant. There were changes in technology. There were changes in technology. There was changes in climate. There were changes in a whole range, religion, art, all of those things. But the problem becomes, as I read it, this, again, this question of history versus prehistory. Because history, or prehistory, is literally before history. And I'm increasingly seeing people using the term pre-contact. But again, the concept of pre-contact predetermines and expects that contact moment. And similarly, the pre-colonial 
there's a teleology in here. We're getting, it's, it's, it's as if people are rushing towards that moment of, of contact. And yet, as I said, we know that there were vast changes. Work in the Kimberley has shown significant changes in rock art, extraordinary developments and shifts. There are regional specialisations. For example, the Gunditjmara, who we work with extensively in Victoria, in Western Victoria, lived in settled houses which began around six or 7,000 years ago, villages. They fished, they, they farmed eels. They developed eel aquaculture on a global perspective. In a world, on a world scale, this is remarkable stuff. And it still doesn't get the kind of prominence. Instead, we get 65,000 years ago, and then the Dutch arrived in 1606. Linguists tell us that the language has changed. Now, I'm not a linguist, and I find linguistics really difficult. I have to be honest. But the linguists tell us that language has changed. About three to 4,000 years ago, they shifted from a traditional type of language to what they call Parmanungan. I don't understand how that's possible, but there's change there. None of this is actually written into the ways in which we teach, certainly not at schools. And then, of course, there is the most significant change of all. This comes from a really marvellous little program that's available to you free on the internet. It's called Sahul Time. It comes out of my university. Um, and this shows us sea level over a period of time. So this is at about um, 95,000 years ago. So about 95,000 years ago, you see that's in the centre there where we would normally expect the Gulf of Carpentaria. What we have, in fact, is Lake Carpentaria. Australia is connected to New Guinea. And then 40,000 years ago, some changes. 20,000 years ago, the sea is coming in. And of course, within the last 10,000 years, or in fact, probably eight or 9,000 years, the sea has risen, broken through, and it's reduced the size of the continent by at least a third. Can you imagine what a massive change that would have on societies that lived, particularly those that lived on the coast? We also know that there is evidence that the dingo arrived. The dingo has only been here. Archaeologists tell us about two and a half thousand years ago. DNA specialists say maybe 5,000 years ago. But it certainly it didn't arrive on its own. It was brought here. New waves of people. I think it's really important too that we think about what that land looked like back then. And when I was a student, I loved this image. I just adored it. Um, it's got loads of problems, and archaeologists will tell you that it's, you know, some of it's got anachronistic bits in it. But I, I don't know if you remember the old colour photocopier. I actually took the book to the colour photocopier at, at um, Officeworks and, and had a picture of it made, and I had it above my desk because it humanised the past. There were people in it. It wasn't a bunch of artefacts moving across the lake. This is Lake Bungo. It wasn't just artefacts moving around. It wasn't middens that suddenly just appeared but didn't seem to have anybody who made them. It was people. And it has a whole range of things in there, activities, I mean, significant amount of activities, but it was built, it was drawn, rather, by, an, by somebody who was archaeologically informed. In fact, he was based at the ANU at the time and was working with archaeologists. 
I think today students are more visual than even I was back then. And I don't think, I think if we don't move with the times, we're really going to become irrelevant. I think it's terribly important that we really understand the past and we make it visual in some way. And it's probably more important right now because, let's be honest, there is a kind of push for constitutional recognition, there's a push for a, a re, reborn push for reconciliation. It's all part of the popular zeitgeist. We do need to engage with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander histories. We need to reconstruct the past. We need to understand what it looked like. One of the most fascinating and I think really evocative things about the past is, of course, that there were megafauna. When Aboriginal people came here, there were giant animals, massive animals. This is a, comes from a, a website which is actually looking at megafauna in Australia. The, the hot topic amongst archaeologists talking about megafauna is, did Aboriginal people cause the extinction of the megafauna? That's the to hot topic. It's the one that everyone's looking for the smoking gun, as they say. This particular very reputable site as you can see down the side there, it has various options. You can look at the land, the climate, the fauna, the fossils, the caves, the fossil hunters, pitfall, game, timelines, fossil links and activities. Again, it's designed for children at school. And the one thing that they say, the beasts, why did they die out? They mention Aboriginal people. They say Aborigines came to Australia at least 40,000 years ago and many scientists think it could be earlier. So they would have been around when the mega beasts were plotting. That's it. There's no, no engagement at all with this hot topic debate about whether or not Aboriginal people were responsible for the extinction of these creatures. I think it's astonishing to me. Similarly, when you go through reconstructions of these creatures, which are very popular, a lot of artists have engaged with this, you find that they are dominating the landscape, but it's a landscape devoid of people. I'm pretty sure I would, that Aboriginal people would have noticed diprotodons. <laughs> and even when the Australia Post decided to create these rather beautiful stamps, and I, I, mean, I like megafauna as much as everybody else, but again, they're entirely devoid of people. Look, I know there's a problem with imagining Aboriginal people into a past where we can't demonstrate it. But we know they were there and we know that they actually were engaging in some way or other. There's been a common complaint over many years for archaeologists and particularly those of us who work in this interdisciplinary space and that's the problem of ethnographic analogy. Indeed, um, people say you can't assume that what happened or what was visible happening in the 19th century or indeed with traditional communities today has any meaning beyond the last 100 or 200 years. So, of course, I run the risk of reinstating the very thing that I'm really worried about, and that is fossilising Aboriginal culture as unchanging. So we do have to be careful and creative. I do understand that. When uh, Martin and uh, Bentley created First Footprints, as I said, they worked extensively with archaeologists. And I apologise, I'm just going to skip through those. We, they worked, and in particular, they worked with um, Ian McNiven, who does a lot of work in Western Victoria. And Ian, who, like many archaeologists, spends a lot of time in the historical records. He puts a lot of effort into reading 
careful, close reading of the, of, sorry, of the historical documents. So when they were redeveloping these beautiful uh, representations and reproductions of the traditional huts that the Gunditjmara lived in, they're actually based on his excavations. Literally, the, the doors are where the doors were. And he actually worked very closely with those things. I think it's a, an amazing opportunity for us to... That's vivid. That's, it's evocative. I can see people living there. And it's been so interesting because taking this back to the community, the community has just adored it and they've actually started to build them themselves and reconnect with their own traditions. Just marvellous stuff. Okay. The Monash Country Lines Archive, which I mentioned earlier, is an animation program. We go about... And I, I'm not actively involved in the construction of these, but we go about working with communities and talking to them about what stories they would like animated and how they would like us to work with them to salvage what language they have. These are two... They're, they're quite delicate things to do and there's a whole range of very specific technical aspects to do with uh, reproducing human bodies and the like so that they are um, not too creepy and not too cartoon-like. But these, these are the sorts of things that we've been doing, imagining the bodies of the people of the past. And I think there's something really profound in that because if you pick up an archaeological book, an archaeological article, it's very easy to imagine that there are just artefacts moving across the landscape. They're, the agency of the people is often absent. But I would suggest that in Australia, perhaps more than anywhere else on Earth, there is the possibility for a truly integrated, deep continental history European colonisation is a very rel relatively recent phenomena. And as I said, that ill-named prehistory covers 99% of the continent's history. And while this earlier period of pre-European contact remains the purview of archaeology, I'm very optimistic that historians can develop a deep narrative, but it's going to require a little loosening of our disciplinary boundaries. So while many archaeologists read and acknowledge historical research, the reverse has not always been the case. In fact, there are so few historians that work with archaeologists that I think I can name them all. At least one's in the room I've seen. <laughs> in preparation for tonight's talk, I examined the archaeology and history majors across the major universe, Australian universities. Archaeology is not taught in all universities, whereas history is, so obviously I focused on those universities that taught both. Most Australian archaeology majors list one or two history subjects as electives and none as core units. Not even Aboriginal or Indigenous histories are listed as core units in most of these. In the historical field, I'd venture it's even worse. Um, archaeology subjects appear as electives, however surveys suggest that very few history students take classes in archaeology. These students are going to be the history teachers of the future. And indeed, if most history majors do not include any archaeology at all, how on earth are we expecting them to teach this? The difference is ancient history and Mediterranean archaeology, where there's absolutely the, the history subjects and the archaeology subjects are both given equal weight. It's quite different here. When I became president of the AHA, I had this um, hope and aim that I would bridge the gap between history and archaeology and I might, might make it a really transdisciplinary place. I don't 
know that it's been that successful so far, but it is certainly can, remains my hope. So how do we integrate these two? Well, I think it's around the concept of encounter. Despite being known as New Holland and being visited by agents of imperial and commercial interests from Europe and Asia over many centuries, Australian history has overwhelmingly focused on British discovery, its exploration and settler colonialism. This has had a teleological effect on the writing of history. There is a tendency to depict the past as hurtling towards an inevitable British colonisation. I'm really keen that we might radically shift Australia's historical awareness by concentrating on the dynamic history of encounter between First Nations people and outsiders over millennia. My personal focus is going to be the last thousand years, but I think we can do this. And when I say um, interactions, encounters, it can also be encounters within groups and between groups. I think this is going to allow an important intervention into the debate around history, national identity, and directly address an urgent need for a balanced understanding of Australian history. And you see, I'm calling it Australian history because I don't believe there is an Aboriginal history and an Australian history. I think if we, it's all Australian history. There's a whole range of, there's a whole kind of discourse around encounter and the importance of encounter. It owes a great deal to pioneering work of people like Greg Denning and Salmon and others, including a number of archaeologists. But I think the thing about the concept of encounter, which I like the most, is it has agency on both sides. It's not merely contact, it's actually a history in between. So in order to write a deep history of Australia, I think we need to think about the encounter processes and the times in which Aboriginal people have encountered others. Indeed, I think it's a crucial component in combining history and archaeology. So to do this, we're going to need to compare First Nations textual and oral records for encounters with outsiders. That's the perspective of First Nations people, a sort of inside looking out. Those of you that know Daniel Richter's work on Native, um, Native American looking east from Indian country is the same sort of thing that I'm thinking we can do here and hasn't been done yet. Across the Australian mainland, Tasmania and Torres Strait, there are oral traditions and narratives about encounters from linguistically and culturally diverse First Nations groups. I think there's a real opportunity here for us to understand the impact of those encounters but also the ways in which they control those encounters. We need to go back to basics. We need to look at outsider and newcomer records for Australian encounters. We need to go back to the European Empire. We need to go to North and Southeast Asia. We need to go to the Melanesian mariners. We need to reconsider the Dutch, the French, the Spanish, the Portuguese from the 16th century onwards. We need to think again about the Macassans and the Chinese maritime networks. That's just the last thousand years. We need to think about these physical interactions and consider the role of Terra Australis in the ancient imaginary and how that's bookended by the British settler colonial deployment of the concept of Terra Nullius. Now, pursuing interdisciplinary work is not going to be for every archaeologist or even every historian, but for interdisciplinary specialists like me. It's a crucial part of creating narratives about the past adding an original contribution, I hope, by using non-hierarchical and non-linear methodologies. I hope to analyse interactions and transactions and reactions in that encounter space. Developing a typology, the archaeologists love typology, a typology of complexity 
reading each instance as an event but also as a text, one that we can read with its historical, cultural and linguistic and geographic context. Telling the epic story of Australia and Australia's past must also include Indigenous knowledge and perspectives. It needs to include Indigenous voices. First Nations people must be an integral part of how everyone comes to know the story of this country, of this nation. We can do it, but we need training, we need the will, we need support and we need funding to ensure that all Australians learn about and have a stake in and feel some pride towards 65,000 extraordinary years of change, adaptation, movement, development, evolution, regional specificities, to feel pride in that and call it our history is my great dream. One of the things I'm just going to end with is Tangarong um, community live just, just a few, 60 kilometres north of Melbourne. They have, up until very recently, no language skills left. They've been working with linguists and the rest, and they've been basically reclaiming their language. And just recently, we developed this. Um, <laughs> It's my dream over the next few years that we might be able to work in the uh, augmented reality space and actually start to have this put into um, mobile um, virtual reality goggles and the like. I reckon if they can put Pikachu on the middle of a freeway, we can do something like that. <laughs> And I think it can, it can be used, I think the technology is there and it's ready and it's, it's actually coming down in price daily. Believe it or not, that was actually produced by a PhD student and it, that's just a small snippet of a really beautiful animation. My final slide was, can you imagine using augmented reality, these visual reality goggles, some of them you can actually do with a Google and you can do it with your iPhone and they're actually just cardboard and they sit on your phone. But imagine if you go to the much-contested discoverer of Australia, Captain Cook in Hyde Park, and you can actually, using your phone, using augmented reality, you can hear a counter-narrative. There's no need to pull it down. We don't, I'm in, I'm, I understand people... I'm a historian, I don't want anything pulled down. But I understand that people do want things pulled down. I want a counter-narrative. I want it to be interrogated. I want it to be challenged. And I think we've got the technology to do it. We just need to have the willpower and, frankly, we need to have some 
political um, nous behind us and some funds. So, thank you. Thank you for that. Uh, working as a historian and a archaeologist with Aboriginal people on a regular basis, one of the things I often encounter when I mention to them C14 or OSL dates, or oh, put it in their language, is, hey, my dreaming is we've been here forever. What am I going to get excited about your 60,000 years for? Is a focus on dates in itself a Eurocentric endeavour? Absolutely, absolutely. And so many, I mean, so many elders say things to me like, you're just learning what we've always known, you know. It's, and they just find it bemusing that they, there's this kind of desire to keep pushing things back when it means little to them in that sense. Then there are, there are also those who say quite clearly, we became Aboriginal here. So it's not... One of the things about not being homogenous spatially and not being homogenous chronologically, we also don't get uh, a homogenous set of opinions from Aboriginal communities. Everybody's different. Hi, um, I'm a new Australian, newish, <coughs> having spent two-thirds of my life in New Zealand, um, which, by the way, has just elected a 37-year-old woman as its Prime Minister and likely to have a Māori man as its deputy, so look um, east. <laughs> um, I, was, I went to an Aboriginal weaving workshop at the Botanic Gardens, and it was really interesting because they talked about... Um, and I don't know where it was in Australia, but they'd used um, spectrometry kind of um, technology to look down at places where there was Aboriginal history, so I won't call it legend, but history about megafauna. And they had just thought it was a legend, and then they were able to find the bones. So I just wondered how much the interdisciplinaries would look not just at the augmented reality technology, but at technologies that could bring the climate change issue. Because it seems to me that if we're going to have shared narratives, that at this point of coal-driven Australia, it's quite valuable to be able to look back both for people and fauna. Yeah. And there is, there, is, um, there is debate around the, the longevity of oral traditions because there are certainly stories that people, and um, a number of papers have been written quite recently, on people's memories or traditions, memory traditions of sea level rise. Now, there are others who say, no, that's not possible. No, 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 tr you know, no tradition lasts that many thousands of years. I, I tend to think that there is something in this. Well, It's definitely time for people to start taking notice of that and listening, definitely. 
Um, my observation that I'd like to mention is, is really about cultural tolerance. And I uh, recently came across some um, uh, material which speculated that um, pre-European pre contact, you know, back in those thousands of years ago, um, most Aboriginal language groups would have shared at least three to six other language knowledges of surrounding groups. And I just wondered if you might be able to comment, even though you did say linguistics was your hard subject, <laughs> um, what kind of um, conceptual framework of a people or a group of people might exist when they're already translating mm. to existing neighbouring cultures? And that could extend very, very long distances, apparently, mm. um, as opposed to someone like me who just learnt one. Yeah. You know, maybe maths is the second one. But um, if you have uh, almost across a landscape like Australia so many different groups who are daily, you know, even at festival times, um, you know, regularly interpreting other people's ways of life and the slightly varying contexts in which they see uh, anything, you know, objects, creatures, um, it, it does seem that you might have a more tolerant culture than one language group culture and, you know, I'll just leave it there. So. No, I, th I, th I think there's a lot to be said for multilingual um, people and I think if you look at the Yolngu-Mata, Yolngu-Mata from the, the, the Tiwi Islands area, uh, sorry, from Northern Australia, they actually have um, a whole lot of Macassan words in it and Macassar, if you go to Macassar, they actually have a whole lot of Aboriginal words in there too, representing very long periods of trade and exchange. Thank you, Leonard, for your talk. It was really interesting. Um, I will preface this by saying that I am an archaeologist. Um, that will be my intellectual bias for the evening. But um, I was wondering if you could briefly speculate. Um, I know you talked mostly about the role that historians could play in, say, the recent past, so last thousand years or so. But what it would look like for a historian to play with the more, the deeper past, 10,000 years ago in the cultural changes, or 20, 30, 40, or up to 65. I think the main, the main contribution is going to be the capacity to tell good narratives and to actually weave the stories. We know that every... I mean, this week, last week on the Science Report on the ABC, had a wonderful program on the evolution of music and just reminded us that there is no society on the planet that doesn't have music. So why not think about that for a start? Not that we can recreate or even understand what the music was like, but we know there was music. These were not silent quiet places. It's one of the things that I think historians can remind that we need to think about the full range of human behaviour and uh, culture. How would you write that down other than to say, we know it was happening, we know these are culturally modern people, behaviourally modern, in every fullest sense of the word. How can you expand on it more than just saying this is that? I think this is where I'm talking about using the virtual reality, the augmented reality, whether or not we can start to think about ways in telling stories that are more than just stones and bones and bits of ochre. I mean, a piece of worked ochre that is 65,000 years old speaks volumes to me, but it's almost overlooked. That's not easy. I'm not going to pretend it's easy. <laughs> it's not going to be easy. <laughs> Yeah, and I would also probably comment that, I mean, history is also historiography. It's about the whole, uh, in, you know, conceptual framework that you apply, which 
you know, archaeology, not to start any arguments, but isn't primarily concerned with, as far as I know. Um, but I did have a question uh, that was about... Ooh. <laughs> um, I did actually have a question um, that towards the start uh, of your uh, presentation that you mentioned that the Monash Country Lines project being funded purely by um, philanthropic uh, funding, um, that's horrific but not surprising considering the sort of political situation that we have in Australia, yeah. um, particularly given, for example, uh, I was down at UTS um, just earlier today, they, uh, the staff were on strike and there were members of... Um, uh, uh, the Aboriginal community from the Northern Territory who had actually come down uh, talking about how um, that the, they came as in solidarity because they're facing incredible persecution, particularly in the form of the basics card, you know, and you mentioned here, for example, as well, you know, that both um, our political parties are uh, very racist, there's ongoing, you know, racism against Aboriginal people. So how do you see this um, incredible intellectual um, project and vision that you have, um, you know, being realised in our country in these conditions? I think we have, it has to be collaboration. We, you, it's, it's not going to be for archaeologists to re-educate themselves or historians to re-educate themselves, but for us to work together. And I think, I mean, a lot of my writing is collaboratively written with archaeologists and, and, and others because I think it's really important that we do that collaborative work because I do bring a different set of theoretical perspectives and I certainly bring in different methodologies and all the rest. And it can be very challenging, but I think it can be incredibly rewarding. It's not going to be easy. Yeah, thanks, thanks for the talk, uh, Professor. Um, I'm thinking that one way in might be for how to get Indigenous people, or at least to have Indigenous people considered voices listened to, might be environmental repair. Um, you know, the programs, programs of Indigenous rangers have been fabulously mm -hmm. successful country and for the, and for the communities, uh, for example, in, in remote Australia. And then we also, um, I've had a look at Bill Gamage's book, uh, Biggest Estate on Earth, which said that this was Australia was constructed in the managed landscape, which, uh, you know, the whitefellas then went and shot themselves in the foot by, <laughs> you know, disregarding what the land managers um, had to say about it. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, one of the, I mean, one of the key reasons that the, centre, the Australian Centre of Excellence that I'm a node director of is actually biodiversity and heritage. And one of the things we're really interested in is just that traditional and ancient land management strategies. Um, Bill Gamage's work is a great start. It really is. And I highly recommend both it and Bruce Pascoe's. Um, Bruce Bas Pascoe's work, I think, is destined to be a classic, not just in terms of a piece of Aboriginal history, a classic piece of Australian history and, importantly, a classic piece of understanding landscape. So I highly recommend it. Um, so my name's Teresa Mondo. I come from um, late, so I missed nearly all the lecture. But um, I wanted to ask a specific question about uh, my community because I come from La Perouse, which is right on the shores of Botany Bay. And I was 22 years old. They had the, um, uh, the, the bicentennial um, event, mm -hmm. which we refer to as the beginning of survival days. Um, I then ended up working in the Commonwealth Employment Service in the 90s. 
And when Mabo came down, all the backlash and stuff like that affected the community. Internally, it was very scary because we had to um, restructure ourselves. There was a lot of reminding people of what protocols existed that were now strengthened because of the Native Title Act. And so um, what I actually have, which I've been having trouble with, and has caused me a lot of grief and loss is um, a project from the 90s because Botany Bay is not like Uluru or, and it's, it's um, even more closer than Rec Bay, for example. Rec Bay is a very well-known Aboriginal community that got um, joint management over national parks and they take a cup from the gate. And My role was supposed to be working at employment, education and training and developing the community so that we could tell our stories like this. So... We decided as younger people back then, I was 22 when the big march happened, and the scary feeling that we had when the, when the um, approach of the 26th of January 1988, because there were only 28 houses out at La Perouse, and it was very scary for, for us. It was a feeling of being overwhelmed, and um, when the people came, so they say 40,000 upwards, it's the biggest march in the history of our people. So the equivalent in America is maybe Martin Luther King's March on Washington and in India might be Gandhi's Salt March. And I, I'm appealing for some insight or some people here that might be interested in helping us because next year on the 26th of January is the 30th anniversary of that event and people have begun to discuss and have a dialogue around the change the date... Um, I don't want to go into that, but, I mean, the, the platform is there, the dialogue is there, but we have a project where our community signed as participants, we're funded, and then when the Howard government came in, all these departments, everything was centralised, we lost everything, self-government, you know, and we've been fighting back from there. And the sorry part of it is... To this day, we have never finished the story of La Perouse in, in the form of a play to gather the oral history of the eyewitness accounts of the people who were gathered there, who descend from the original people in the corridor of first contact and descendants of the very first Sydney people documented ever. And it, in my own community, we still can't get to the stage where, I don't know, we need money or we need expertise or... It's taboo to talk about it. Well, we are effectively taking it to our graves. And then people will talk about it second or third hand. And then my children don't understand. So, for instance, my, my dad, he, he was a founder of the Tribal Warrior Association. We were also in the, tw in the 2000 Bridge March. And the other day, it was just a slight thing. NITB put a story up and said that one of the misquoted... The, um, the founders and my children then believed what was in the mm -hmm. video and challenged me as to what the truth was. And so I just wanted to, um, to bring up that specific thing which is very urgent because the dialogue is a dialogue but we have a tangible goal. We have the right to pass on our stories and be self-determining and have the spin-offs that come from that when people get involved, a pathway into TAFE, education, and all these kinds of skills acquisitions. But 
I'm just stigmatised in my own community and it's really hard. So I just wanted to focus on that Thank so I'd get an answer. Thank you very much for sharing. Thanks for listening to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. For more information about our upcoming events or to listen to more podcasts, head to sydney.edu.au forward slash sydney underscore ideas.